0: For four days in April, Brick Arts Media hosted its second annual Brick Open Festival, this year an exploration of the borders that exist within our world. Through art, film, music, discussion, dinner, and dancing, the festival revealed the complex experiences of crossing physical, geopolitical, ideological, and imagined borders while illuminating the way these lines intersect and celebrating our capacity to cross them. As author, activist, and festival speaker Darnell Moore put it,
1: Borders in, in my mind are these things that are, are political machinations, these things that we create to divide and, dare I say, you know, colonize space. It is about figuring out how we can be in conversation and speak across uh, difference and use those differences as a, as a means to be engaged with one another, not to be afraid to talk. So radicalism, which is all about erasing boundaries, erasing hierarchies that exist between you and I, between us and the other. And a way that we can transcend or or even demolish those borders, to me, is critical at this moment.
0: Today we're bringing you stories from the borders people cross to get into, out of, around, and through Brooklyn. In the first, a mother makes an impossible decision in order to give her children a better life. Next, a group of high school students leave Brooklyn for the weekend and end up all over the world. Then, back at home, a community is divided by a seemingly invisible line. And finally, we go back to school and back in time with a group of kids who trace their family's roots around the globe and back to Brooklyn, USA. The president's fervor around building a wall between the United States and Mexico is as confounding as his fundamental misunderstanding of the motivations people have for crossing that border to begin with. But there are many sides to every story. Here Candy and Anna.
2: Candy lived with her husband and three children in Jilotepec, Guerrero, Mexico. Jilotepec is a small town where most of its population live from agriculture and sometimes it is difficult to survive. Candy's husband started to mistreat her and in 2000 led her to move and live in the United States.
3: When my husband left, he left me with three children, a 12-year-old boy, an eight-year-old girl, and another that's five years old.
4: I was very lonely because I was completely helpless,
3: without any economic opportunity. I felt very desperate, and I didn't know what to do
2: needed to feed her children. And without any financial resources to support her family, in 2002, she made one of the most difficult decisions of her life.
4: I had to ask for help finding a way to get my children out because I wanted them to have access to an education that I couldn't provide. I spoke with my brothers, who were already in the United States. They offered to lend me money so that I could go there and work. But it was only enough
3: for me. They couldn't help me with my children.
4: I made a plan to cross alone and then return with them after three years. It was very sad and very painful to separate myself from my children, but what could I do? With
3: $100 that my mother had given me, I risked looking for a coyote to cross the border. I felt helpless and sad because I had left my children behind with the dream of fighting to give them a better life
2: de luchar para darle su una vida mejor. Then, Candy paid the services of a coyote to cross the border and get to the United States. I traveled
3: to the border where I contacted a coyote who charged me $2,000, which my brothers paid
4: for me. After
3: walking for more than 24 hours straight, with only a bottle of water and a pack of gum, I thought I was not going to make
4: it. But I kept fighting. The first attempt to cross did not work. The coyote abandoned us in the desert. I had to go back and try again. The second trip was different. It was easier.
3: The road was lighter. And we did not walk as much. Within about eight eight hours, we were on the other side of the border.
4: I felt so happy when they told us, we made it.
3: We are in the United States.
4: Uh, I saw that I could realize the dreams I had carried carried
2: across with me. Once Candy settled in New York, her brothers supported her financially for two months. After that, she worked in a family house for three years. Every month I sent money to my sister to take care of my
3: children. I tried to concentrate only on working hard, to take my mind off of how sad I was.
5: We were away from her for about three years.
2: Her daughter, Ana, the youngest of her three children.
5: So I was staying in my aunt's house with my sister, and my brother was at a different aunt's house. So it was very hard to know that I had a brother that I couldn't be with. And he couldn't we couldn't see each other as often as we would like.
2: However, in two thousand five, everything took a radical turn when Candy made a sudden decision to bring her children to New York. My
3: children were 16,
2: 13,
3: and nine years old at that
4: time. Gracias a Dios, mis hijos. Thank God,
3: a month later, the coyote delivered them coyote to my
4: doorstep. En de, de no la, there are no words to so express the emotion Sentí I felt when I hugged my children again after a, three years. A mis hijos de años.
2: It was a great joy.
4: Anna ah,
2: tried traveling from Mexico to the United States three
5: times before she was successful. So I was nine years old. On the first attempt to cross the border, the coyote actually got us lost. So we had been walking for hours. I don't remember how long it had been, but we kept walking and we kept walking and eventually night fell. So that's when they realized that they were lost. So then they told us, all you have to do is just follow the train tracks and you'll be back at the town and we'll try again tomorrow. So then they just left about 10 of us in the middle of nowhere. And we just started following the train tracks until we eventually reached the town again. We still waited like a day or two. And then the same coyote came back and they told us that we were gonna try it again. We walked for hours only carrying water and there was no bathrooms. The second trip was longer than the first one because it took more than one day. And they had told us that we've made it, that we were right at the border about across and all of a sudden we see cars coming and that's when they detained the whole group except for the coyotes because the coyotes ran. They left us. I was very scared because they separated the older people from the younger people. So my brother was taken into a separate van and I was with my sister. I do not know if they were gonna take us to see my mom or if they were gonna put us back in the same place that we started in Mexico. They took us to a detention center. It was just a big room with benches. And it was cold in that room, so that made it worse because we weren't prepared for anything cold. So we were just hugging each other and we didn't have anything to eat. We just had the same water that we were carrying the whole day. They didn't provide anything for us. They just sat us in the room and left us there. They didn't offer any information. They didn't tell you what they were gonna do with you. But then eventually they put us in a car again and the town that we had started in, that's where we were dropped off the next day the coyote came again and he said we were going to try it one more time we got our stuff ready again we just ate something really quick and this time we walked for the whole day in the night we slept on top of rocks because it was it it was a big mountain it was getting colder and so everyone was just huddled in a group together and then the next day we made it to the border and they said once we go over this you'll be in the United States and they told us as soon as you cross this Just run, 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 run. And then there'll be a person at a certain point waiting for you and just hide with them. So it was just one person would jump and they would run. And then the next person and run. And then it was my turn and I just jumped across and started running, running, running until I made it to where the whole group was. And that's when the car came. And they were like, everyone get into the car. Being nine years old, I was very small. So they put me in between the driver and the passenger seat of the car. I was happy because I had room, but I, I remember seeing my brother and the other older people crunched together, but we made it to a house in Phoenix. And then we made it to New York, and I remember looking out the window of the car, and my mom was standing there waiting for us, and my brother said, look, that's mom. And I just stared at her like, that's really her. When we were able to leave the car, we just ran to her. And we just hugged her and she was kissing us. And it was just a fun time because it was the first time in three years that I was able to hug and kiss my mom. After living several years in Brooklyn, Anna
2: applied for DACA in 2012 and received it in 2014. Anna is about to graduate with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. She remembers how her life
5: changed because of DACA. In my last year of high school I was applying for colleges and I didn't have DACA at that moment yet so I remember talking to a counselor and every time I would mention a school or a certain career that I wanted to do she would stop and she would ask me but can you do that and I would wonder why she was asking that and then she's like well I know your status in this country I began doubting myself just because I didn't know what to do because I didn't feel like I was welcome in this country but after I got DACA my hopes just came back and I was dreaming again because now I had a chance that I was gonna be able to get a job and then that with that job I was gonna be able to work and pay for my college tuition and so I started looking into colleges I started looking into jobs and now DACA allowed me to open those doors for myself thanks to DACA Anna has worked helping people out of jail and
2: also at Blind Center in Manhattan. This is Anna's dream to help the most disadvantaged people to integrate into American society.
0: That piece was produced by Alexander Brownie and edited by Ed Parada and Sasha Mathias.
1: Um, I'm Manuel Arenas, and I'm in 11th grade at AUP.
6: Last February, exactly four weeks after the inauguration of Donald Trump, Manuel, he goes by Manny, and his classmates at the Academy of Urban Planning in Brooklyn, got up at 5.30 a.m. to take the train to their Model United Nations conference. Model UN is a cross between a political science class, debate team, and a theater club. Students act as delegates from countries they've been assigned to represent and debate global policy issues. Manny is representing Gabon.
1: Well, our opinion is that we should mainly focus on like education and healthcare for refugees, especially in African countries, because they suffer like huge amounts of refugees' uh, intakes.
6: Student groups from around the world have come to this conference at the Boston Park Plaza Hotel. Some clubs are well-established and compete multiple times a year. Manny's teacher, Ashling Roach, started their school's Model UN Club just a few years ago.
0: But See, they're very, very scared that someone's going to ask them a question that they don't know the answer to. And that's a real fear. I think that's a fear for anybody in front of a room that you're going to be kind of like shot down.
6: That's Miss Roach. For many of her students, this will be their first time traveling outside Brooklyn. For students like Iris Rodriguez, it's all new. It's interesting because I never... Been to another state to do like a conference or anything. Even though Brooklyn is a global city, many neighborhoods within it have invisible borders drawn around them. It's not necessarily a bad thing, there are long standing communities in place. But leaving town can create some surprises. Shamir was like, everyone's white, and they're all like, that's racist, don't say that. All the rest of the kids, and I was like, well, they sometimes think that talking about race means you're racist. Manny Iaris and the others have traveled four hours and crossed state lines to debate a crisis that the world's leaders can't seem to solve, the global refugee crisis. Just three weeks earlier, in the first week of his presidency, Trump signed an executive order on immigration known as the Muslim Ban. It stopped all refugees from entering the U.S. And thousands of people have been protesting at airports, day after day, up until the beginning of this week. While the students go off to review parliamentary procedure rules, Miss Roach returns to the room she's sharing with another teacher. The flat screen TV is turned to CNN. You know, that was a very real threat. But thank God
7: did, you know, get done by cells in places like Yemen and elsewhere.
6: Miss Roach has a bag of donated dress clothes spread across the bed. So they donated a ton of dresses and blazers, mostly for girls. The boys are a
0: little easier cuz it's like you just need a suit, wear a suit. You just need a suit.
6: The nationalities and security clearances this weekend are all faked, but the questions facing the students are real.
1: Donald Trump, like, he shut down borders and airports um, nationwide. I feel like that's just, like, it's not right to do. Like, the United States wouldn't accept our people suffering as much as Syrian refugees do.
6: These students weren't in Brooklyn anymore, and neither were they in Barack Obama's America. Liberia was accidentally assigned twice.
0: So they wrote to me this morning and said, Would your delegate like to be another country? And I said, No way, she's been preparing to be Liberia. All
6: right. Friday night, the ballrooms fill up with excited and nervous teenagers who've changed from jeans and sneakers to blazers and dress shoes.
4: Ready? Okay. you ready for this. You're
6: ready. You guys have you guys Whoa. look amazing, you yes, sound it. amazing, and you're ready for this. A student from Boston University, whose Model UN club is hosting the conference, begins with a roll call. Then students have to raise their placards to be picked for the list of people who can speak. A couple of the AUP students make the speaker list. This is what their teachers are hoping for. My name is Dan, here representing
1: Jamaica. One point we should address today is designing tighter restrictions to prevent smugglers who are taking advantage.
6: And also protect our... The goal is to write and pass a multination agreement.
8: A girl had mentioned, maybe she didn't make it clear enough, but she said that um, to eliminate terrorists, depending on how someone looks or if they seem to be committing um, terrorist actions. You can't look like a terrorist. And like unless you have, like, bombs behind your back, and that's different, then obviously. But other than that, it's, it, this, it did remind me kind of like of Trump, what he does with, like, the Muslim because They look like terrorists. You can't look
0: like a terrorist. It's kind of stupid. <laughs>
8: I went through war with people, I'm After committee
6: sessions, the AUP students crowd into a room for Chinese takeout and a debrief.
1: A lot of people, like, they give a lot of interesting points even though they get off-topic. Well, yeah, like, everybody's friendly They're like, everybody, like, without you, like, if you're afraid to, like, say hi to someone, they'll do it for you, like, they'll be, like, introduce
6: themselves. That's Raphael. He and his classmates are sitting on the couch, the bed, and the floor. Rafa and his friend Jimmy were in a different committee session, and they talk about their room.
0: And you gave a speech today? Good job. How did
1: that feel? Well, good to close, at least. I've been, like, raised my placard, like, nine times. But... Okay,
0: that's a good point. Every single time I saw this kid, he his placard up.
6: Rafa's done well so far, which doesn't surprise anyone. He's tall, easygoing, and well liked.
1: Yo, it's really not hard. Like, when you, it, like, you would think because there's like a hundred kids in there, but when you get up there, it's like being at the stage at school and looking at everybody. Like, I just had to say what I had to say. Okay, okay. Dominican Obama. Oh, okay.
6: <laughs> a lanky young man with prominent ears and a close fade. Sometimes they call Rafa Dominican Obama.
1: <laughs> and you look very
4: presidential up there. Very presidential. thank you. I was very
1: proud of you. <laughs>
6: All of this, from traveling across state lines, to meeting students from other schools, to learning research, public speaking, and debate skills, is exactly what the AUP teachers want their students to get out of Model UN. There's so much that Model UN can offer. So it's asking young people to think in a global context, first of all. A major goal I have for my kids is literally to get them reading the headlines in the newspaper, picking out a couple articles, and following what's happening in the world. Natalie Pardo, another AUP teacher, agrees. You know, we're getting you ready for the real world. We're getting you ready for the real world. Actually, this is the real world here because they're
9: talking to people from all over the world. You know, at school, over time, you can be judged by how you look, who your friends are. But when you come here to Model UN,
6: it's only your ideas. And Manny and Irs are ready to share those ideas.
1: All I needed to do was like just take my time and like just know what I'm talking about and be very passionate about it.
8: I think it's interesting. You get to see like other people's perspective on different topics, and you learn from them, and they also learn from you. And like I talked about certain ideas about like how it's not fair that the U.S. is not taking in as many refugees, and Ethiopia is one of the poorest countries, and yet they have up to 780,000 refugees.
6: At the end of the weekend, they'll check out of the hotel, take Amtrak from Massachusetts back to New York, and then the subway from Manhattan back to Brooklyn. A year has passed since the conference. In that time, the United States has slashed annual refugee admissions even further, and the global refugee crisis is far from solved. Manny is a senior, and he just returned from his final Model UN conference with the AUP team. This year, it was in Chicago. These students are still finding their voices and feeling out their relationship with the larger world. But each time they step up to the podium or negotiate a treaty, they're discovering that they are more than equipped for life beyond the walls of high school.
1: It's a great experience, especially for me. I'll definitely do it
0: next year. I love this. That piece was produced and edited by Carolyn Silveira and Emily Bogosian.
7: Quiet Sabbath afternoon on Kingston Avenue in Crown Heights. Today, the street is a little different than it was a few months ago. Some people are pushing strollers. Among them is 32-year-old Elisheva Cohen.
6: So when there wasn't any Erev, you couldn't push the stroller on Shabbos.
7: Elisheva and her family are part of the Jewish community that are in favor of the new Erev. Erev is a Hebrew word. It creates a kind of loophole around the Sabbath prohibition of carrying, and it's a physical border around the community. Sort of. I asked pedestrians to describe it.
0: It looks like a long piece of thread yeah. tied up to the light. Yeah, I, I never saw that. I never even noticed it.
7: Yes, it's literally a piece of fishing line strung between lampposts. But without an aerov, practicing Jews wouldn't be allowed to bring anything with them outside the house. That includes keys, umbrellas, and even strollers
6: is either we would invite a lot of guests for the Shabbos day lunch, or parents would alternate when they go out to synagogue or to visit friends and somebody else would babysit.
7: The Aerov essentially makes the area within it into a walled city. In simplest terms, it makes the neighborhood into one big house, at least as far as the law of carrying is concerned. While it seems pretty simple and inconspicuous, this piece of string is tied to a major controversy. A majority of Crown Heights never even wanted the Aerov. Naftali Silberberg has lived in Crown Heights for 20-something years and explained why. Again, it's a Chabad it's community, and it's a community also where everyone over here, again, I say everyone, i am talking about, over 95% of the people respect the Rebbe as the spiritual leader of, of the neighborhood. The Rebbe in Crown Heights didn't want to build an eruv, and also when people, Lubavitch Rabbis, asked the Rebbe about whether they should go and take the initiative in building the eruv, the Rebbe said no. So for someone to come and to build an Arab over here, they're showing disrespect to the community. Most of the people who live in Crown Heights are Hasidic Jews. The community leaders go by the opinions of their founder, known colloquially as the Rebbe. And the Rebbe was against there ever being an Erev in Crown Heights. Why? There are many, many halakhic opinions on this. Whether in general, whether it's advisable to have an Erev, if yes, what are the, what are the specifics on what the Arab has to be, what it doesn't have to be? The short explanation is that Arabs are complicated, and not everyone agrees they should be used at all. It could be that you would accidentally carry outside the borders. It could be that an Arab would make people forget carrying is forbidden. It's a complicated question because it's not really so relevant. What is relevant is that now there are modern Orthodox Jews with their own rabbis, who say that this Arab is kosher. One member of that community is Naftali Hanau. Since he moved to Crown Heights seven years ago, Neftali was on the committee to get the new Erev built. Because I'm an observant Jew with young children, and I need an Erev to have uh, the kind of community and you know life that, that
10: I
8: want to have. You know, and, and the kind of life that I grew up with. You know, I grew up in Rochester, New York, in a modern Orthodox community, and like most other modern Orthodox people in my generation, we had an Arab There were a
7: handful of protests from the Hasidic community when the Erev went up, and even an arrest for vandalism in October. But the issue of the Erev is more than just a case of Chabad versus modern orthodox newcomers. The neighborhood is diversifying beyond these two points of view. Sheena Drizzen has been living in Crown Heights her entire life and has noticed the change among her peers.
0: You know, people are perhaps choosing their level of observance in, in a way that in previous generations, this community hasn't been doing. I feel like You know, the Arab is something that could highlight those differences in the community, Mm -hmm. but the differences are there.
7: The range of diversity was also highlighted recently during the high holidays. There was a rise in people going to alternative services instead of the more traditional ones.
0: The people in the neighborhood
7: aren't changing. They've already changed.
0: This is just, you know, one aspect that sort of shines a light Mm -hmm. on the different, you know, aspects of the community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all the different opinions that exist
7: here. Affecting the neighborhood or not, the air remains another controversy in the world of Brooklyn politics. Yeah, what's your 30-second opinion of it? I, I think it will be
4: something that people that like to argue about will have fun with. Okay.
7: From Eastern Parkway in Crown Heights, I'm Rachel Jacobs.
0: In early 2017, faced with a wave of hate and anti-immigrant rhetoric that was threatening to sweep the nation a school in South Park Slope stood up to celebrate the differences that exist within their student body. Their message was clear. We are PS10. We are 1,000 stories of trial, persecution, and hardship, and 1,000 stories of survival, strength, and success. This is our story. This is our America. These are a few of their students.
10: Me? Mm-hmm. Well, my name is Chase Preston-Turner. Chloe Neville. Oh, my name is Theo. Maya. I'm Jonan. I'm Cecilia and I'm six.
0: I'm Ruhi Pandya, and i uh... Ruhi is one of the chairs of PS10's Diversity Committee, a group of committed parents who band together to foster compassion, understanding, and acceptance of the various cultures, ethnicities, religions, sexual orientations, genders, abilities, and socioeconomic backgrounds of their families. Months before, in October 2016, the Diversity Committee declared that PS10 was no place for hate, a designation awarded by the Anti-Defamation League to schools and institutions with a demonstrated commitment to combating bias, bullying, and the escalation of hate.
8: So we're doing workshops for both parents and teachers and the students as far as how to um, talk about race to your kids.
0: The committee aims to increase cultural competency by reflecting the diverse PS10 community through programming that celebrates differences, encourages open dialogue, challenges preconceptions through experiential cultural explorations.
8: I also submitted my husband's family's background for the Diversity Project.
0: The Diversity Project is a long running cultural exhibit that combines photo and text to highlight the ancestors who have helped define the paths of many of PS10's families.
10: So, my grandma was born in India, and my grandpa was born in India.
8: My mother-in-law, my father-in-law.
10: And then they went to New York.
8: They had to go through London to immigrate to the United States to have a better life for his family.
9: And then they had my dad, and then they went back to India.
8: His parents, after that, sponsored their whole entire family to come over
0: here. And there's about 100 (laughs) Bandias in the tri-state area right now. Some of the younger students needed help remembering the details.
9: I forgot a little of it, so I'm gonna need time to think of that part.
0: But Cecilia eventually remembered a story about her grandmother.
9: Great-grandmother. She was a Greek and she needed to leave Turkey because the Ottoman Empire wanted to kill the Greek Christians there. Her mother, Fatini, had seven children and she took her seven children on the boat and she found two more kids and adopted those kids. I feel proud of myself because now everyone that goes to this school can know about my um, family and know the amazing things they did.
0: And this is one of the main goals of such a cultural exchange. We met one of the other diversity committee chairs.
9: My name is Sonia Neal Turner.
0: Who, with the help of her son Chase, traced their family's roots in this country back generations.
9: We've always grown up with the story because it was so important that everyone would use it with their children.
10: My great-great-grandparents, they were very poor.
9: You know, coming from a family that had absolutely nothing.
10: I think they were farmers. um, Descendants
9: of slaves and had to toil and work the earth. He, you know, grew crops, started to sell them. With the money that he made from that, he bought a store.
10: They raised a the family of eight children that were able to go to college.
9: He used that opportunity to his advantage.
10: Well, anything is possible when you put your mind to it.
0: Like the Turners, Chloe's family's also been in this country for a while.
10: My great-grandfather mm-hmm. lived
5: in wilkes barre I'm Christina Neville, Chloe's mom.
10: He was three when his father died and his four brothers went to work at the mine.
6: And it was and a coal mining accident that his father had died in.
10: Yeah. He was a healer um, in World War One.
5: Yeah, he, he worked with children who had polio and stuff, mm-hmm.
10: right? And later, he supported his family and other people when there wasn't enough a lot of money.
3: During the Great Depression? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have, all things considered, a very typical story, actually. It feels very, very American. Everybody's sort of trying to find a way to make it work.
0: But diversity isn't just about race, ethnicity, and class. Diversity is also about ability, as well as
8: gender issues and socioeconomic issues. Diversity could be anything and everything.
10: Well, my parents are lesbian, and usually the diversity is, like, about your ancestors. But mine is uh, um, about my family and about how my parents are lesbian. They were kind of hiding it, but, like, then when Barack Obama won the election, they didn't have to hide it anymore. They signed up for the same job, and Emily was, like, pretty late. And then my mom had a big crush on her. I was like, she looks pretty cool. So, like, Patty was, like, serious, and Emily wasn't. So, like, They were like a perfect match. Most people don't know um, that my mom's a lesbian. Well, there's like another family that has another set of twins and um, two gay fathers. I didn't really know that, um, I didn't know that like they weren't allowed to be like gay before like Obama got elected. Probably because like it's the first president to allow gay rights.
8: It's just so wonderful to see that everybody has a story
0: and just how many exciting and different stories we have within the school. Fostering these sorts of connections is obviously important to a group of Brooklyn parents, but what about the kids? We wanted to know what they got out of this exercise.
9: I can know a lot of stuff about other people's families. If they know mine, I can know theirs.
10: One family might do something and the other family might do it also but maybe a little different they can make friends or know what another person grew up with and the things that makes them who they are it's easier to relate to something than just to learn it well most people they just don't know
0: The students of PS10, again led by the Diversity Committee, just completed their third round of diversity project submissions, which hung on the playground fence for the past couple of months. They're currently compiling their collected family histories into a coffee table book.
8: Diversity is our strength, and that's uh, the best thing about being in Brooklyn. You could experience it all in your own backyard.
0: Brooklyn USA is produced and edited by me, Sasha Mathias, and Emily Bogosian. Thanks to Alexander Brawny, Candy, and Anna for carrying us across one of the world's most treacherous borders. Thanks to Rohi Pandya, the PS10 Diversity Committee and all the students we talked to for taking us along on their journey. Thanks to Carolyn and the students at the Academy of Urban Planning for letting us tag along as they ventured out of Brooklyn through the Northeast and around the world. And thanks to Rachel Jacobs and the people of Crown Heights for helping us find our way around. This episode featured music from the DeWolf Music Library and opened with a quote from a Darnell Moore interview on one of our other podcasts, 112BK. If you like what you hear, think we got something wrong, or just want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us at Brick Radio, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. Um, my mom just signed me up for this. My brother didn't really
10: want to do it. I said, okay, I guess I'll do it.